good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll catch up with former Chicago Cubs manager Joe Madden to talk about his new book, which dives into a number of topics, including his time on the North Side. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review Writers Theater's latest production. Later in the show, I'll sit down with New Philharmonic maestro Kirk Musbrand to talk about an upcoming Halloween concert that will be filled with spine-tingling music. And I'll bring you with on a visit to the new immersive King Tut exhibit, which just opened in Chicago. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. If you're a sports fan, we're in the midst of what's likely the busiest time of the year. Football season is in full swing. The NHL season just started. The NBA season kicks off on Tuesday. And it's playoff time in Major League Baseball. And of course, October is a little more exciting if your favorite baseball team is in the playoffs. Six years ago, Cubs fans were on cloud nine as their team marched through October on their way to, spoiler alert, the team's first championship in 108 years. Here's the 01. This is going to be a tough play. Bryant, the Cubs, with the long series. Bryant makes the play. It's over. And the Cubs have finally won it all. 8, 7, and 10. The lovable losers finally broke through, winning their first World Series since 1908. And even if you don't consider yourself a sports fan, it was hard to escape Cubs mania back in October of 2016. The person often credited with making that decades-in-the-making dream a reality is Joe Madden. The three-time MLB Manager of the Year did what no other Cubs skipper had been able to do in over 100 years, win the World Series. However, the glow of that championship didn't last as long as you might expect. The Northsiders parted way with Madden in the fall of 2019, and he went on to manage the team he broke in with, the Los Angeles Angels. Fast forward a few years, the Cubs are now in a rebuild, and Madden is out of baseball for the first time in over four decades. But he's keeping busy with the release of his first book, simply titled The Book of Joe. He co-wrote it with award-winning baseball journalist Tom Verducci, the book offers an in-depth look back at a life in baseball. Madden played in the minor leagues in the late 70s before becoming a scout, then a coach, and eventually a major league manager. It also explores Madden's outside-the-box thinking, which helps set him apart from a generation of baseball minds that tended to see things the same way. But the book also makes it clear that despite Madden's innovative spirit, he also has a deep respect for baseball's past. I recently caught up with Madden to talk about the book of Joe. So if we start at the, the beginning of this project, when did the idea of what turned into the Book of Joe start coming together? 
for years been uh, approached about doing something like this. And then I think at the end of the Cubs year, 2019 into 2020, I talked to uh, Tommy Verducci about doing something together because I just, I think Tommy's that good and he's that talented. So uh, we started speaking about it then. And then we got together with 12 and then Sean Desmond uh, with 12. And then, and then here comes the pandemic. And it just really uh, gave me so much time that I utilized that to just talk to a dictaphone for over 100 hours. I gave Tommy 100 hours of audio, and my sister, my my wife's sister Louise, was transcribing it. And then these guys would prod me on a daily basis to dig deeper. And that's that's how this all came together. And then and then the premise, though, I didn't want it just to be about me as a youngster playing ball and growing up, and it had to be more than that. And that's where. Tommy and I got together with the idea of comparing and contrasting managers from the 80s up to present time and and all my thinking and the st- different things I've done in between that and how it all uh, was influenced. It's more than just baseball. Hopefully there's a leadership component to it, I, I would want to believe. And uh, and that was it. It was it had to be more than just your typical baseball book. I did, was not interested in that. Right. I saw something uh, where you were talking about this process where you recorded your stories and memories into this recorder and then would send them to to Tom Verducci. And then as I was reading the book, I was like, wow, man, there's a, a lot of detail here. Joe must have a really good memory. Obviously, you've had this long and distinguished career. You've met lots of people. Is it a challenge going back and recalling all those stories and getting the, the people, places and things and all those details in the in the right order? I know you had some help. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm weird by that. I, I, I really see things well from the past. And the part that they really helped me with was when I would talk about something, they would encourage me to get deeper into that moment or that thought. And just to drill, they drill down, drill down. That's all I kept hearing. And then I would have to try to get deeper into that memory. And um, it was great. It was great. Uh, the direction was so clear from these guys. And, um, and my recollection is pretty clear, too. Um, and that's that's really how this evolved. Combination of me being able to remember a lot of things that have occurred. I mean, in baseball, we're, weirdly, we're like that. We we years and places and and people we are able to put it together. Uh, and if you throw a song in there from that particular time period, it really jog, jogs your memory. So it was a combination of a lot of those things. But it was it's pretty clear to me uh, what had gone in the past and a lot of the things that I, I talk about was very clear. So there's a few chapters I wanted to make sure we highlight. Chapter 5, titled, Try Not to Suck. We get the origins of that saying that you made famous. But then later in the chapter, there's a a deep dive into what it was like managing Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. I thought it was pretty enlightening as as a fan reading kind of about the the strategy that goes into something like that. What are your memories of of that Game 7? Yeah, it's pretty, again, it's very, you know, a lot of it was a conversation that occurred beforehand. We had talked about uh, Kyle to John, to Araldis. That was that was the game plan to get those guys and part of the plan. And so there's all that little stuff that you do the day before uh, that uh, you're just trying to prepare people mentally for the moment that more than likely was going to occur. So that's vivid the day before with with that. The lineup not so much. The lineup was pretty much what we what we thought it was going to be. Our lineup was uh, pretty much set. Uh, but then the game begins, and that's where. Uh, you love when theory and reality come together, but it's very it's very uh, infrequent that theory and reality come together in a baseball game. One of the biggest moves Madden made in that Game 7 was taking starter Kyle Hendricks out in the fifth inning despite a 5-1 Cubs lead. That's ball four to extend the fifth. And the batter will be Kipnis. 
is a move coming here. And it is. Boy, this is an extremely quick hook. And with Kipnis coming up, a left-handed hitter. Lester's coming in. Here in the fifth. Like you said, there's no eighth game of the World Series. You have to be proactive in doing things, and you just can't wait. That's why to get Johnny up soon, Lester, and he had warmed up. So then Johnny sits down, and I'm thinking to myself, I can't keep warming this guy up and not put him in the game because if, if he becomes uh, used up uh, by filling in the bullpen, we have a, a lot less chance of winning this game. We need John Lester in this game. It, it eventually occurred, and I, I think I explained it there, where um, ball forward is Santana, and then here came Kipnis, who had been hitting the ball well, and then Lindor. See, the, the key to that whole thing was Lindor on deck and the fact that Johnny Lester is an experienced relief pitcher because they did not want several guys on for, for John uh, to come into the game, and you're almost forced to have uh, Kyle pitch to Lindor if that happens, and Lindor at that time was a much better left-handed than right-hand hitter. So you got all these different things going on, and that's why I made the move when I did. Plus, I talked to Rossi while they were still warming up, and he said, John is electric in the bullpen. He said his stuff was that good. So there's all these different things that help influence your decision. So I remember that uh, well. And then uh, the game kept getting deeper. Johnny was so good, and I was just really wanting Johnny to get out of that inning. And there was that ground ball up the middle that gets past uh, Addison, and then he got to go to the bullpen to Evaldis. One out before I wanted to do it, but had to do it. And eventually, uh, Davis hits that home run, and uh, everything turned in that moment. But this, this is all part of the planning before the game. Yeah, and I'll give you the last tidbit. The guy that made the last out, the ground ball to third base, through Mike Borzello, our game planner, he said, this guy has never, ever hit a left-handed curveball, Martinez. So we just were going to feed him all the curveballs we could, and eventually he hits that little ground ball to third base. So all this stuff is going on in Game 7 of the World Series, and there's no Game 8. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section on WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek, and I'm talking with former Cubs manager Joe Madden. His new book, The Book of Joe, just came out. I also really enjoyed Chapter 7, which is titled Attitude is a Decision. We really get insight on what happens when preparation and opportunity meet. Getting hired to be Tampa Bay's manager in 2006 seems like one of the biggest moments in in a career filled with lots of changes, but that seemed like, in retrospect, that was the right situation for you at the right moment. Absolutely. That was the right team. I mean, going to to the Red Sox as my first team, I would have never been, I don't think, permitted to evolve like I did, uh, there would have been too many restrictions. People would have wanted to, no, you can't do that. Uh, no, we've got to try this instead. There would have been too much interference, I believe. But the Rays were so wide open at that time, never had done anything, and Andrew permitted me a wide berth. So I could do all the things I did in the minor leagues and in instructional leagues and as a bench coach wanted to do, but I'm not the manager, so I'm not going to insist to a manager that he tries something. So, yeah, that was the perfect blank canvas to be able to take everything that I'd learned at that point and with the cooperation from Andrew to put things into, into implement it. And it was, that's exactly right. Uh, they're, to me, they were an expansion club. They had no success whatsoever. They were wide open, and that's all I could have asked for. And finally, uh, chapters 18 and 19 uh, were really fascinating. 
I live in Chicago. Uh, I'm a White Sox fan, but I, I, you know, I follow what was going on with the Cubs, and it's always thrown me when I think about how things played out after the 2016 World Series. And you talk about it pretty candidly in the book. Does 2019 leave a, a bad taste in your mouth? Uh- Yes and no. I mean, at the time, you know, when it just was over a little bit, only because I loved it there so much and I loved my guy so much. Uh, I loved the city. It was, you know, I didn't want to leave that place. Just don't get me. That's that's really the tough, the, the bad taste would be having to leave there. The different things that uh, I had to implement that year. Yeah, at the time, I, I thought maybe I was wrong. I needed to change some things. But then as the season was in progress, I figured out, no, you know, I've, I've kind of conceded too much here. But it was too late at that point. But if anything, I really thought that that group, our group, should have stayed together longer. We could have done some really good things. Three consecutive NLCSs, one World Series, losing a wild card after your team had played 42 out of 45 days, something nuts at the end of the season. And that team that got incredibly hot, the Brewers just got so hot. And that none of that is spoken about. It's not like the Cubs are so bad, the, the Brewers were so good. And, yeah, the one thing I I enjoyed, Jay and my wife and I enjoyed our stay there so much. And I still, it's best five years ever in baseball for me. So outside of the Cubs, what are your your favorite memories of the city of Chicago? Oh, geez, I love love my bike trail. God, I love riding up and down Lakeshore on my bike. Um, Often. I mean, uh, for home for home for a week, I needed a night game to ride, but riding up and down there all the way up to Hollywood Beach. I would start from downtown and go up there and then come on back. It was a football field up there off to the right that I would stop and I'd do my exercises with and uh, have my music on, see the skyline, and you go, God, this is... I remember saying to myself, I'd be riding, I'd say to myself, I still got four more years here. <laughs> I still got three more years here. I still got two more years here. I say that to myself. As I was riding up and down there, and of course the uh, the restaurant scene, incredible, and the fact that we had a restaurant there, Madden's Post was outstanding. It stinks. That that's one part that really stinks that that's no longer there because it was the build was that great and the food was outstanding. So that is probably my biggest disappointment now, even though I had to leave. But the fact that the restaurant was able to survive that would have been wonderful. But the food and the people and the restaurants and. And just how the, the people treated you, the fans on the street. I would get stopped all the time, but nobody wanted anything but except to say hello, and they really appreciated it. Continued good luck. It was great. The way the Cub fans interact with you it was so easy. It was beautiful. I would have to imagine if you, uh, you're walking down a street in the Lakeview neighborhood these days, you would get, you get mobbed by people. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's, yeah it, it happens. Um, I haven't been back in a while, but... Uh, I see a lot of people from Chicago everywhere I go, and uh, they always, always just happened. Uh, it happened I, uh, the other day at our uh, community center here. We uh, we partnered with uh, Penn State University for what we call STEAM, science, technology, uh, engineering, and then we included arts and math, right? And so we have a STEAM concept, and the doubt that's the local chancellor of the local Penn State campus from Chicago. <laughs> And, of course, her kids are all excited and I had to take a picture with her. So that doesn't happen with any other fan base. It's just the Cubs. Yeah. The Cubs. I don't want to oversimplify things. If you think back to those days in the in the 80s when you were with the Angels system and, and think about baseball today, what are the, the biggest changes to the way organizations are run? Yeah, initially, it's just that, um, quite frankly, just real baseball people were running it. 
um, people that grew up in the industry, people that grew up in the game, people that had played the game were pretty much in charge of the game. Um, and now they, they're kind of more on the periphery. Uh, the new group now, of course, have become baseball people, but in a different way with a different method. Uh, but it's, it's kind of, uh, there's been a lot of pushback to, uh, to, the, to the previous generation of player or coach or manager or the previous two generations. It's just not, um, it's not accepted. That it's their, their, their information, their wisdom, their experience is not wanted. It's just not wanted. Whereas back then, we, if I could have sat with Billy Martin, if I could, I did sit with Gene Mock, if I could have sat with Branch Rickey, but I did sit with uh, Preston Gomez, who was a disciple, or, or, or Don Zimmer. I mean, I actually sat with uh, Carl Hubble. I mean, think about it. And I, I, I crave for those moments, whereas I don't think, I crave for those moments. I don't think the group today would desire that as deeply, as wantingly, as, as importantly as I did, given the same opportunity. So it's, it's just, it's run in a different way, by a different method, by a different group. So the biggest difference is purely baseball people, for lack of a better term, running the game compared to how it's going today. And from your point of view, we lose something when some of those things start to happen. It's, 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 not, it's not as good as it had been. My, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'd, I'd like to see it morph together more because um, I do like uh, a lot of the, the new methods that are being employed. I do, but not to the point of excluding everybody else. My, I want baseball to be first and everything else to be second, where everything else is first and baseball is second. That's how I see it. So I would love to see the organization, the group, the owner that comes in and says, hey, we're going to turn back the clock here. We're going to bring in um, some real baseball folks, have them scout, have them run your minor league system, have them teach baseball, and we're going to incorporate the new information and the data and whatever. Absolutely, we're going to incorporate that. We're going to make sure that everybody's up to speed, but baseball is baseball first and everything else comes second or third or fourth i think some fans might be surprised because they identify you as this you know trailblazer with new ideas but you have this real appreciation for for the past and as you just said kind of merging both sides uh, to make informed decisions uh, do you get that yeah. sense too that people may have misconceptions about you um I don't know. I, I think only because I'm considered uh, outside the box or the fact that I've tried different things that automatically you're, you're perceived to be different. But my, my whole game is rooted in tried and true and uh, fundamentals and teaching the game the right way. I've, I was taught properly, and I teach properly. Uh, I, don't, I don't cut corners. I, I know how to teach somebody how to run the bases. I know how to teach somebody how to be a good receiver or outfield play. Or as a hitting coach, I could get right down to the smallest tidbit of mechanics. Not everybody can do that. But then again, when I saw that putting an extra guy on this side of the, or four outfielders against David Ortiz might get in his head a little bit, I was all about it. Or as an example, everybody always used to say, even to um, contradict old school, don't make the first or third out of third base. My line has always been to get the third base with less than two outs as often as possible. So I guess I'm the contradiction within my own contradictions, because I believe in both, but I just believe in what is the right thing to do here and what's the right way to describe it. And uh, I want baseball taught as baseball, and I want it supplemented. Analytics is a supplement. It can't be the game. Are you interested in managing again? Yeah, I am. I am. Uh, I am, but it has to be with the right dance partner. I just can't 
work with, and uh, nor do I believe I'll be attractive to any just anybody. It's got to be with the right people, with the right kind of uh, philosophical concepts, and where we could be aligned. Absolutely. So as of today, the the White Sox have an opening. Any thoughts? No, no. I, <laughs> I like Tony a lot. I Tony, I, I texted him when he was ill, and uh, we he texted me back. I'll I'll get more in touch with him now. I I listen. That's. That's a whole different thing. I would never com- comment on that. I just, I like Jerry a lot. I like the, that whole group over there. I know a bunch of those guys just wish them well and hope that they, they're happy with what they do next. But Tony and I are buds, and I just wish that he's well. Yeah, you understand. As a, as a fan and an admirer of you, I had to, I had to ask. So we've been kind of a baseball focus, but as you alluded to earlier, you know, the book, a lot of the, the lessons in the book apply to, to other things. I'm thinking of, um, I think, Chapter 20. You talk about how you dipped your toe into this idea of the shift in baseball, of shifting defenses, and now it wasn't really widely accepted until you brought it to the, the forefront, and now we see it all the time. Of course, there's going to be a rule change coming next year, but uh, you know, something like that, thinking outside the box, that's something that applies to, to people no matter what their profession is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's I, I, I believe what we talk about in this book will apply to groups or companies or industries outside of that, outside of the baseball industry. I think there's a lot of application, even in your family, there's application. Um, I believe that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back because I get a lot of feedback from different people that like different things. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious. I'm eager to see how this all turns out. Um, having Tom as a partner, see, you have to, and, it, and I know you understand, but he is that good. His uh, ability to research the, for things I talked about and combine it with other examples to me kind of blew me away how in depth he got with a lot of this stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased about it. I'm, I'm wanting it to reach an audience just wider than the baseball audience. The Book of Joe is, is great. I consider myself a, a pretty big baseball fan and familiar with a, a lot of different things surrounding the game, but I have to say I learned a lot reading your book. And I have a, an even deeper appreciation of, of what you've done. So, Joe, thanks so much for, for making That's time. Really cool, man. Thank, thank you, Gary. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. That was former Cubs manager Joe Madden. His new memoir, The Book of Joe, is available everywhere books are sold. And a, a quick note that he'll be appearing at a book signing event November 16th at Anderson's Bookshop in Downers Grove. And you can find more information at andersonsbookshop.com. Wanted to take a moment here and say a big thank you to everyone who called or went online to pledge their support to WDCB and especially the art section last week. For those folks who, who called in or went online and made a donation, well, we appreciate it so much. Thank you. Also, a quick reminder, if you listen to the art section every Sunday morning, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. You can find archived episodes and individual features available to listen to anytime you want. And there's also uh, pictures and links and additional info that goes along with all the features you hear on the program. If you have some time, check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the art section. 
My name is Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Good to you. Good to hear from the both of you. Writer's Theater is opening its 22-23 season with a production of Mike Lou's play, Tiger Style. And some of our listeners might remember Lou also wrote Teenage Dick, which opened in March of 2020 and was the first local production to make what ended up becoming a pretty familiar pivot from stage to screen. Theater Wit made Teenage Dick available for streaming, which was an innovative thing for the time. Brian Balcom directed that production, and, and he's directing a Lou play again with his Writer's Theater production. Tiger Style follows a pair of siblings, Albert and Jennifer, who as adults are struggling with their identity as third-generation Chinese-Americans. Jonathan, we'll start with you. What did you think of Tiger Style? Well, Gary, I have to tell you there's an old proverb, you may remember it, that says, there's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. And uh, I feel that this applies to Tiger's style. It's indeed a very energetic play uh, by Mike Liu. Uh, he calls it a satire, exploring the identity split facing Americans of Chinese heritage. But to me, it came across more as a comic strip or a cartoon, which isn't the same thing as satire. And, you know, it's difficult to say whether this is all Lou's fault or also partly the fault of the director, as you noted, Brian Balcom, who pushes the play along with a very fast pace and a hyperbolic acting style. Um, as you said, the play centers on a brother-sister, Albert and Jennifer Chen, who are young, third-generation Chinese-American overachievers, especially Jennifer, who's a, an oncologist, a doctor. And when Jennifer's boyfriend of three years refuses to marry her, and when hard-working Albert's passed over for a promotion in favor of a likable slacker, they both enter crisis mode and question what it means to be either Western or Eastern or a little bit of each, and which set of values that they should uh, embrace. Now, they first blame their so-called tiger parents for pushing them too hard and controlling them too much, and then they embrace their Eastern or Chinese side with a disastrous trip to China. Disastrous because neither one of them speaks Chinese. Carrie, what was your initial I, take? You know, I, I sort of agree with you on almost all of these points. And again, I, I remain confused as to whether it's the direction, whether it's the script itself. You know, I think there is something to be said about creating a script about, you know, marginalized communities where there is not the pressure to make them likable. I, I, I'm okay with characters not being likable. And I think we could argue that... Mm, Albert and Jennifer, in many ways, although we certainly understand why they feel the way they feel, don't necessarily come across as incredibly likable. The problem I had is that they sort of started at one place and were still in that place by the end of the play. I didn't feel like there was <laughs> any kind of a trajectory. So in that sense, Jonathan, I agree with you. It's sort of a flat cartoon, you know. And there, there is the tricky thing, and I'm, I, I acknowledge that I'm saying this, you know, as a as a white American woman, but there is, to me, I feel always a tricky thing in using racial stereotypes to try to deconstruct racial stereotypes, and I'm not sure that that really worked here. I know that Irene Chow, who reviewed the show for the Chicago Reader, who is Chinese American, you know, had had some objections to it along those lines. For myself, I just felt like I have seen all these actors do much better work. I just felt that they were sort of boxed in at, at, a, at a point that started at a fairly high level and just had nowhere to go. Um, although the points are very interesting, though. I think there is, 
I mean, that's what's frustrating to me about this is that, yes, this idea that you are defined by your achievements, yes, you know, that uh, white Americans are all too comfortable to allow, you know, the, the model minority stereotype to play out and to take advantage of that or to push that with their coworkers uh, or in personal relationships. Jennifer has a boyfriend who, you know, wants her to be both more domestically submissive and sexually domineering. And while she is working as a very high-end oncologist, you know, and saving lives. Um, and uh, it, it just, um, yeah, it just felt frustrating. Like, what is the greater point? One thing I noticed in the script, too, Jonathan, and I can't remember, and maybe you would if this was something in Teenage Dick, where there are points where the characters say things that seem to be pointing out the problem with their worldview, but it feels to me almost like the playwright. For an example, uh, Jennifer at one point, when they're in their uh, their time in China, Jennifer says something like, but what if we're viewing China as tourists and everything seems more exotic and vibrant than it actually is? Like in the same way others viewed us as exotic back home. I mean, I think that's a good point. I didn't buy that this is something Jennifer is going to say out loud right now. <laughs> it felt more like the playwright, okay, I'm taking advantage of this moment to acknowledge that this is the dynamic that's going on. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And, you know, I, I picked sort of one of those moments out, too. Uh, it's when Albert cites a Green Day song and says, I want to be an American idiot right. with, all their, <laughs> with all their irrational self-confidence and sense of entitlement. Right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I went to see this play with a second-generation Chinese-American friend who observed that Albert and Jennifer are third-generation, meaning that their parents were the immigrant generation, their grandparents were. They they and their parents are American-born, and they're not immigrants, so their angst and cultural conflicts truly seem a generation too late. And this was pointed out to me by... by my second-generation Chinese-American friend on our drive home. You know, here's the deal. Mike Liu is covering territory that other Asian-American playwrights have covered. And maybe it's a a necessity that sometime in an Asian-American playwright's career, he, she, they, is going to address this topic. But while his style is quite bold, uh, I don't think his insights are. I quickly can think of several plays which for my money, did it better, such mm-hmm. as David Henry Huang's Yellowface and Lauren Yee's King of the Yees, <clears throat> both seen in Chicago in, in very good productions several years before the pandemic. And I also think of Chin Yuen's Viet Gong, which comes to mind, oh, that's about the experience of being a first-generation immigrant, so mm-hmm. it's not exactly the same. But, and, and, yeah, I agree. Those are. I, I also have seen all of those plays, and I think they did a more successful job of using the stereotypes to interrogate the stereotypes rather than just slapping the stereotypes on stage and hoping that we would understand the intent behind it. I don't know if that makes sense either, but uh, it just felt like basically I I just got tired of these characters very quickly. (laughs) And and I wanted, I wanted to be more invested in it. Um, You know, that didn't happen in teenage Dick. I mean, as a point of comparison, teenage Dick, which as our listeners may recall is a contemporary high school take on Richard III um, with, you know, a young man with a disability who's also quite scheming, as is Richard III. Yeah. Um, he's not necessarily a likable character, but I felt invested in that character, and I was, you know, interested in where that story went. And I don't think it was just because I I knew the, you know, the, the original inspiration for it so well. 
I think it was just that that was a more successful exploration of how, you know, people who are marginalized, again, as a person with a disability would be, can be unlikable and can kind of, you know, self-sabotage as much as they are oppressed by people outside of their world or, you know, around them. I didn't feel that dynamic emerging in Tiger style, and I feel like it's a missed opportunity. Yeah, I agree. The characters, Albert and Jennifer, are quite superficial, and they behave, they make their decisions, uh, you know, without any depth of thought, and, and so forth. They, so they come across as, as idiots and fools, mm-hmm. and, and supposedly neither one is uh, a, 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 it, neither an idiot nor a fool. Uh, you and I really wanted to see this because we admired Mike Lou's earlier play, Teenage Dick, which uh, Gary, as you know, was also directed in the local production by Brian Balcom. This one did not come up to that mark. Uh, Tiger Style does effectively contrast the loosely structured chaos of American social and professional life. We see that in what happens to Albert and Jennifer in the United States in mm-hmm. their personal and professional lives. And the play contrasts the loosely structured American chaos with the tightly controlled Chinese big brotherism when the two of them travel to, to mainland China. I like that point, but it's not the central point of the play. And I feel like the, mo- the more contained performances, I would say that my favorite across the board, now, um, the, the actors who play Albert and Jennifer only, only play those roles with uh, three other actors then playing all the supporting parts. I felt Deanna Myers, who is their mother, their cousin that they meet in China, at one point a therapist, um, uh, did, did very excellent work. And it was because the performance there was a little underplayed. You know, I, I think she was letting the material go through her rather than trying to push it. And so even within the world of this play, I felt this is a person who's a supporting player, but I'm kind of more interested in what they're doing right now than the fate of the, you know, than what's happening with these two siblings. So, so a misfire in many ways. I mean, did I laugh? Absolutely. There are some very funny moments. I don't want to make it sound like it was just a complete, you know, um, you know unpleasant somber, experience top to bottom. Somber, yeah, oh, not absolutely not. Play. Yeah. No, no, no. no. Uh, there's some interesting design elements as one, you know, has come to expect from writers, but, I, I just felt that the the larger point, for me at least, felt frustratingly out of reach within this story. Okay. Some uh, less than enthusiastic reviews. <laughs> Writers Theater's production of Tiger Style continues for another two weeks until October 30th. And before we wrap up, wanted to touch on some theater news, and this is actually relevant to the company we were just talking about. Writers Theater just announced its new artistic director. Braden Abram will take over the leadership post. I know there had been some speculation as to when that decision was going to be made and what was taking so long. Well, the company made it official this past week. Abram comes from a theater company in Seattle. He'll assume artistic leadership of Writers Theater on February 1st, 2023. And uh, the company provided a statement from Abram, and he says he's incredibly excited and honored to join Writers Theater as its new artistic director and that the theater's mission is embedded in its very name and the commitment Writers Theater has to playwrights, artists, and the written word speaks to his passions as an artist, producer, and director. So a new development there, and we'll wait and see what Braden Abram has in store for Writers Theater moving forward after the uh, 22-23 season. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, welcome, Gary. 
You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. What would a scary movie be without an ominous score? Glen Ellen based New Philharmonic will celebrate the darker parts of the classical music spectrum with a program next weekend. The orchestra is calling it a Halloween spooktacular. I recently sat down with New Philharmonic music director and conductor Kirk Muspratt to talk about scary sounds and macabre music. I believe New Philharmonic did a Halloween spooky program last year and it was so successful you decided to do it again? Oh yeah, it wasn't sort of spooky, it was terrifying. And <laughs> Good, you're laughing. <laughs> and it was lots of fun because everybody in the orchestra dresses up and I dress up and then the audience, some of them, we hope more people will dress up this year, Gary, because uh, I'm going to give away some informal costume prizes. So I'll just have something with me and we'll give something to the best lady and the best guy in the audience and just have it be a very interactive, enjoyable, and it can even be a family thing. You know, grandma and grandpa can bring the kids or, you know, mom and dad can sure. hang out with grandma and grandpa or something like that. Then when it comes to, to picking out the music for something like this, what's the starting point? Starting point is terrifying. <laughs> okay, no, it's the same thing. It's, for me, a Halloween concert in 2022 is about fantasy. So if we do a piece like Witches of Eastwick, it's not necessarily, yeah, there's some scary parts, depending on how you look at it, but it's a spoof, you know? And if we do Concerning Hobbits, that's not necessarily, but I want, you know, kids to dress up in whatever they, if they want to be a cowboy, that's not scary. If you want to be a princess, that's not scary. Just mostly I think of fantasy and people having a really enjoyable evening together with us. One of the most recognizable pieces that will be played in the Halloween program is Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor. It's been used in several projects over the years, including an early film adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and Disney's Fantasia, and several other movies. You've likely heard it in, in something. So the box, the Kofsky, the Kata and Fugue, listed as one of the most terrifying Halloween pieces. I mean, it's written by Bach back in the 17th century, you know. But it's been used in Jekyll and Hyde. It was used, you know, in the original, the 1930s Jekyll and Hyde. And just that whole idea, as you stated, of that organ somewhere in the castle or in the dungeon or the, you know, you hear it. It's a fantastic piece of music, you know, and, you know, I want to do some classical music like Wagner and Bach, but we're also going to do things by Arnold and John Williams and Elfman. So, yeah, no, that's a, a classic, the Toccata and Fugue. It's such a magnificent piece. Watching horror films, which I know isn't everybody's cup of tea. I enjoy a good uh, scary motion picture from time to time, uh, but music plays such an important role. Oh, it's everything. I mean, you know, you think of the, you know, ee, 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 you know, 
that he used just that. And you never see anyone getting really stabbed, but who doesn't know that? I mean, this is not horror, but when you think of Jaws, the girl bobbing mm -hmm. that's one thing but when you hear the the you know in a horror film it's it's absolutely everything but gary also i i don't want you to be so scared that you won't come to the <laughs> concert you know so we're also going to we got some new music this year thank god you know really it's so wonderful that our don't donors gave us some money for new music so like we're doing young frankenstein and it's wonderful, fun music, you know. And then we're also going to do, the new piece we're doing is the creation of the female monster by Franz Waxman from The Bride of Frankenstein. It's so scary, like it just, yeah, da, da, yeah, da, yeah, and the same notes over and over and over just creating tension and you know it'll be beautiful because the you know the crew does a great job of decorating the hall so hopefully it's an entire experience you know some of these pieces of music i would imagine they don't come up a, a lot in, in normal repertoire so is that something where you as the uh the maestro and then the members of the orchestra is it like a different rehearsal process because these are pieces of music they probably don't perform often yes exactly if you i have a sheet in front of you saw my rehearsal schedule there right i mean the piece like say the avengers endgame it's only about three minutes long but we've never played it so that means even as hard as we like work on making sure the parts are all perfect and very clear the musicians actually just from brain memory and from muscle memory they've never played it so they're looking at a new piece. They don't know, am I going to take it at a quarter to 64? A quarter equals 74. Do we want to stay on the G string? Do we want to do this? You know, I mean, how fast do you play the trill? You know, all of it. So it, it always, that process encompasses how much time we have to rehearse it well and how difficult or sort of easy the piece is. You mentioned the uh, that Avengers piece. I wonder how many kids who saw that movie, which virtually every kid saw the, that last Avengers movie, you know, saw it on screen, heard the music, but never really thought about where it came from. But they come to this concert and then yeah. they they see it, how it's made. Yeah, and hopefully, I don't know. Have you watched all the Avengers, Gary? I have. Good. See there. <laughs> so maybe there's an 11 year old who goes, "Hey, mom. Hey, dad." Somebody, there's Avengers on that program that I saw, you know, we got to go to this concert. So maybe they don't know Bach, Stokowski or Wagner, but they know Hobbits and they know Avengers. And so hopefully everybody walks out of the hall with a big smile on their face and lots of thoughts and conversation in the car on the way home. And so the most important question is, uh, what are you going to be for Halloween? <laughs> Anybody in the orchestra, the management listening to this, this is, you know how, like the CIA or the army or something, and there's a place called like Fort Knox, you know, like where the gold is stored and it's very, very secret. Well, the, 
my, you know, there's a jar there that has my two costumes, what I'll wear on Saturday and Sunday, and it is sealed <laughs> at Fort Knox. <laughs> Nobody in the orchestra ever knows. Maybe one person who has to come into my dressing room right before the concert knows, but it has to be a complete secret, from the, especially from the orchestra. They cannot know what I'm going to be. What were you last year? Oh, last year. What was I? Oh, I was... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I have to. See, did you see me? I grabbed my head. You know, like, I was Carmen Miranda one night oh, with okay. all my jewels and my f only time anybody ever painted my fingernails and lipstick and earrings and really? pink tights. Oh yeah, pink tights and girl shoes and yeah. And then another, the other night I was uh, an ancient um, Asian warrior. Like with, you know, gah, you know, with helmet and everything, so. So something tells me that you, like, this is like something you enjoy. Like you like picking out your costume. Actually, Gary, it's a lot of work to really get it right, to make sure that I can work in it, I can move in it, that I don't have to do anything to the costume, like because the costumers, you know, and that it won't fall off, Gary. That's really <laughs> bad. You can't have your dress fall off when you're play doing Carmen Miranda or something, you know. And so people are pinning. I had two people helping me last, and they were pinning my skirt like crazy. I go, I don't care what you do. Squeeze me to death, but this thing cannot come off because that that's the end of the performance, you know what I mean? And then, you know, people never come back, you know, and we don't want that. Yeah, it's, it's actually, you know, it's just part of the job, and... If you want to make it good, like anything in life, you have to work hard at it. Kirk, thanks so much. Oh, thanks, Gary. Really nice seeing you. Say hi to the folks at the station for me. That's Kirk Muspratt. He's the music director and maestro of New Philharmonic. The orchestra will be presenting its Halloween Spooktacular Saturday, October 22nd, and Sunday, October 23rd at the Mackinage Arts Center in Glen Ellen. You can find more information at the website at themac.org. This is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Forty-five years ago, a traveling King Tutankhamun exhibition landed in Chicago and took the city by storm. An estimated 1.3 million people visited the Field Museum to see the exhibition, which included 55 artifacts that once belonged to the Boy King. The presenters of a new King Tut experience that just opened in Chicago's Old Town neighborhood are hoping to conjure up similar excitement this year. Visitors won't see any artifacts. Instead, they'll be immersed in a state-of-the-art 360-degree animation presentation that brings King Tut's story to life. The exhibit comes from Toronto-based Lighthouse Immersive, which operates a venue inside the Germania Club building just off Clark Street. The company has produced a number of immersive experiences. Most of its Chicago offerings have focused on artists like Van Gogh and Monet. This new King Tut project is opening just ahead of the 100th anniversary of British archaeologist Howard Carter's discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb in November of 1922. I visited the Immersive King Tut experience and caught up with Lighthouse Immersive creative consultant Richard Uzunian to learn more about how this exhibition was put together. 
So it was the centennial anniversary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, one of the driving factors here? It was a combination of things. That was, I guess, the immediate thing that drove it. But we were also sitting around thinking, we have done Van Gogh, we did Klimt, we did Frida, we did Monet. Maybe we should do something that wasn't a painter next. So the idea of a a historical event uh, with a lot of rich cultural things and then tied to a marquee date, you know, wow, that's the 100th anniversary. That made us think Tut had to be the next one. Many Westerners would probably be challenged to name another Egyptian pharaoh. Ozunian says the timing and circumstances surrounding the discovery of King Tut's tomb has made him the most famous Egyptian ruler. It's interesting, Tut was not one of the most famous Egyptian pharaohs in terms of their history. We know him because he had the only tomb that wasn't discovered by the 20th century. And the reason it had escaped probably, we have to conjecture this, but it seems reasonable, is we do know he died suddenly. Nobody knows quite why. Even when we had the mummy and did DNA on it, uh, there were some broken bones. Could he have had a chariot accident? Maybe. There was some other indication that there might have been scarlet fever, you know, uh, you know or he, you know, maybe he had some other illness. But we do know he died at the age of 19. And he died suddenly, and there was no giant tomb ready for him, because normally they would build them decades in advance. And the Egyptian religion said that you had to be buried 30 days after you died. So they found a tomb of a lesser lord that was available and put Tut in it. And they put all, they crowded in all the treasures and stuff that you normally sent on a pharaoh on his afterlife journey. And they sealed it shut. But then what happened is because this wasn't in the Valley of the Kings where all the other tombs were, you know, on hillsides, Within three years, Tut's tomb was covered by sand. And that's how it escaped being the only tomb not to be robbed. Until a man named Howard Carter, who studied Egypt, said, how come there's this one tomb we never found? How come nobody ever found Tut's tomb? And he kept digging and digging and digging, and they finally discovered it. Somebody knocked over a water vase and found there was a step. And then they started clearing the step. And at the bottom of the step, there was a sealed door with Tutankhamun's coat of arms. And they went, bingo. I think I read somewhere that because it was covered by debris, it was un, uninterfered with, oh, so yeah. it's like the most well-preserved tomb. Absolutely, nobody, th- because as I said, within a few years it was covered by sand and everything, and even the grave robbers for years to come had no idea it was there. So it was untouched. That's why we discovered it, and that's why he became so famous. He was the only new pharaoh in the 20th century, right? And it is interesting, maybe it's kind of cyclical because from what I was reading in the, the 20s when that discovery is made, the whole world is captivated and then the the exhibit tours North America in the 70s comes here in 1977 and from accounts I've read, you know, Chicago had like two to mania. Oh yeah, same thing. I was in Toronto at the time and it was 79 and you, we lived a block away from the okay. museum where it was being done and we got tired of crowds outside of our house nonstop for a year. And then here we are, which makes sense because of the 100-year anniversary, so I'm assuming we'll probably start to see more articles and more interest in, in this topic. I think so, but the thing is people will now, I think the obligation is on everyone to look at it differently. What does it mean? And in actuality, probably the fact that he broke open that seal and they put all the other objects on display would now be considered a violation, you know. 
and you, they wouldn't have done it today. But we're at least trying to repair some of the damage by saying, let's look at everything that surrounded it and maybe give you an insight into Egyptian culture and Egyptian religion. So I know creating something like this uh, has to be a pretty comprehensive process. What's the starting point for putting an immersive exhibit together? The first thing we realize is that, like most people, we don't know that much really about King Tut. You know, we know Steve Martin. We know, oh yeah, he had a famous tomb. So we went to a couple of uh, very renowned Egyptologists in Europe and said, if we were going to do a King Tut show, what should it be about, you know? Uh, because there have been two major Tut exhibitions in the past, and they were all artifact-based. You went to them to see the coffin, to see the masks, to see the jewels, to see all of that. And people loved it, but a couple of things have changed. One of them was the Egyptian government early in the 21st century went, no, these are religious and social treasures to us. We can't treat them like a carnival and have them go around the world. And also, I think there's a tide has turned in the world that we're not so big on cultural appropriation anymore. Oh yeah, let's find you amusing because you had a funny hat or did that. And the Egyptologist said to us, if you really want to do something that'll tie the tomb in with something valid, they said, do you know about the Amduat? And I went, no, what's the Amduat? It is what I now jokingly call the world's first graphic novel, because it was on the walls of almost every Egyptian tomb that they discovered. It's a mixture of paintings and text, but it describes what happens in that tomb after it's sealed. And the Egyptians believe very firmly that once your tomb was sealed shut, you had 12 hours in which you had to, because it was always sealed shut at sunset. And you had 12 hours until sunrise uh, to go through all the terrors of the universe with the, with the gods of chaos. You had to fight them and get through to the other end. And if you won, then you would have a beautiful golden afterlife forever, and you would have helped preserve the integrity of all of Egypt. So everybody's death was like a battle for the soul of Egypt. Very interesting thing with religion. We don't think that now. We think, you're, you know, when I die, that's me, right? Mm -hmm. No, they felt it was all very important because the Egyptians wanted order in the world. They wanted balance. And they knew there was evil and they knew there was good and you weren't going to eliminate either one, but you had to make it work right. So that's what this was about. And the minute we heard that, we thought, now that could be an immersive show. You're in the tomb for 12 hours and you're fighting against all the forces of evil. If you're lucky, you have Amun-Ra, the sun god, to come along with you, you know, uh, and, and help guide you. But we thought that's the shape of it. For folks that maybe have never been to Lighthouse here in Chicago, the way it's presented is you, you come into this, this room and you can pretty much sit anywhere. And the yep. way the projections are is you'll see different animations on different walls. Yeah, or you can, I always tell people to walk around. It's not that long a show. It's like 40, 45 minutes, you know, because the more you see from the different angle, it's like if you were inside a room, you'd want to look at the different walls, right? You wouldn't sit still and stare at one wall all the time. So I advocate that. And it is possible if you just sat in one place and stared at one wall, you'd miss a lot of important things. Lighthouse Immersive also had the support of the Egyptian government. The Egyptian Council for Tourism Affairs, what role did they play in helping put this together? If we needed access to, and it, which we wound up not needing it to, to any place, they were willing to provide it. They were willing to say that what we were doing they approved of. 
I mean, they don't approve of the carnival shows if people try to do things like that. But it was like, yep, this is, this is okay with us. You know, this is, and they thought we were being respectful. And in fact, they came to the big opening night in Toronto. They sent their uh, delegate from Montreal down. And he said, this is, this respects us. This respects our culture and our religion. That's what they were interested in. And I saw there was like a study guide that's out there and I was going through it. Or is the hope that, that school groups are going to come through? Yeah, the study guide was provided for schools predominantly. We thought if this was out there to at least create some conversation, and if all else fails, we've made it available for free to any school that wants it, you know, at least maybe the kids can learn more about Egyptian culture, Egyptian religion, and to it common. Sure. What are you hoping that the people that come and see the, and partake in the experience leave with? Well, I do want them to, first of all, physically have an entertaining time, because it has got a lot of great sights and sounds, and it can kind of bring you in and make you feel involved. But I would like you to think afterwards, what do I think of my afterlife? You know, what do I think I'm going to be judged on? You know, and everybody has a different, I mean, you know, has a different idea of it. Religion, the Catholics have one thing, the Jews, the Buddhists, the Muslims. See, everybody has a different idea of what happens after you die. And some people just believe you die and you turn to ashes. Well, who's right? Who's wrong? Is there anything in what the Egyptians said? You know, is it, you know, worth thinking about. And it also makes you realize the reason they had those tombs and they had all of that was for a reason. It wasn't silliness. Richard, thanks so much. Thank you. Glad to be here. Immersive King Tut just opened. It's running through at least the end of November, possibly longer. No closing date has been announced. You can find more information at lighthouseimmersive.com slash Chicago. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you've heard on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.